The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. again it's his show it's brandon uh, time again for another week of the brandon peters show thank you for listening as always today's episode features a discussion of 1980s fantasy spectacle hawk the slayer it also features our guest returning for a record-setting third time on the show. It's it's their first year, so that's early. Three is, yeah. From the Saturday Evening Post, Troy Brownfield. How's it going? Hello. All right, so welcome, Troy. I realize that this, while it's your third time on the show, it's your first time on like an episode proper. Like you've been on, you were on the Back to the Future one, where that was a roundtable episode. It and something I haven't done since. Uh, well, I've done Roundtable, but not like that one. And then you were on the holiday gift guide for figurines and stuff. So you haven't been on a Sorry. typical episode. But you've done a music video episode, though, so that's that's something. But let's talk about you. And you have, I love, not only do we, you and I have a lot of similar interests and things like that, but I really like you have a varied career in the field of writing, like, not like it's it's not like all over the place. <laughs> yeah, that's one way. Yeah. But you, I mean, you've you've been uh, fiction, nonfiction, writing articles, doing comic books, novel, like crazy yeah. stuff. But was that always like from where in your start? You're like, I went to write stuff, or where did that first hit you and you trying to make a, a thing of it? Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, thanks again for having me on. I you know I've always been you know, interested in writing in one way or another, but I didn't really kind of settle on that until kind of my <laughs> freshman year in college. I had decided to do kind of a law track. And as that, I decided to be an English major. It was where my interest was and everything. You have all these different, you know, you could have a pre-law major, but it kind of puts you in a box. So I wanted something that was a little wider, but pretty quickly in that freshman year, I thought, you know, <laughs> not so much on the legal stuff and it, it was in that time that i really started focusing more in the other way and you know my degree was in english with radio tv film minor and then i did a master's in creative writing and um my whole path was just to work in publishing and so on when i got into um comics it was through the comics journalism path uh, I, you know, in a, in a weird sort of way, I was started out kind of being just happy to write about pop culture stuff. I didn't know I was actually going to be able to get to do it. <laughs> and, and then, you know, you just more of those opportunities um, either open up or you find the space in which you can create that kind of opportunity to, to happen. So I really um, in the 2000s started doing comics online and then actually getting stuff published with, companies which again opened up more of those opportunities for fiction and whatnot so is that was kind of the path that it went 
was Shotgun Reviews your first thing of your own? <laughs> that was that was my uh, first website. Um, mm-hmm. I had been in college. Um, I was an entertainment editor for the college paper and a columnist and so forth. And a friend of mine started a site in '98 uh, that was called the Comic Kingdom com and it was going to be doing some articles and maybe making some comics and so i started writing some articles for him and my uh, original shotgun reviews column was there and it was called that just because it covered a wide area <laughs> i talked about different parts of uh, pop culture and um as that got rolling i thought you know i had a lot of ideas for other columns and stuff but it didn't really fit into what nick was doing so I started the shotgun site and had a bunch of people come in and we were doing wrestling and live music and, you know, CD reviews and movies and all this kind of stuff. And I did a lot of comics and um, that put me in, in the view of people that could publish me elsewhere, like Indianapolis star and Nouveau news weekly in in Indianapolis. And as I did more on comics and started interviewing comic folk it put me in the path of uh, Newsarama and Comic-Con.com. And so I started Comic-Con.com. I started writing for them. And then Newsarama picked me up in 2004. And I wrote for them for seven years. Hmm. And yeah, that really expanded the scope that that gets you to meet <laughs> right, all kinds yeah. of people. And you're regularly talking to people from all companies. And you know, sometimes you make the kind of friendships where someone says, Hey, have you ever considered writing comics? And to which you say, yeah. Because <laughs> yes. I had actually hit the point where I thought it wouldn't kind of wouldn't happen mm-hmm. for me. You know, it was one of those things you think that maybe, you know, that's something that someone gets into in the early twenties. <laughs> right. they, they look into. And then, um, you know, when I started doing it, I, I had a lot of it come my way in a short period of time and I still have stuff that I'm, I'm doing. It might not be as visible as it was at one point, but I have some things that, um, you know, are hilariously visible in like Brazil as opposed to (laughs) the the States. But, um, actually I I can't talk about it in full yet, but, um, the house 137 slash all geek comics, uh, guys that I've done a lot of writing for in Brazil, they've been putting some stuff out with a couple of American places and I'm going to be working on a crossover between one of the Brazilian characters and one of the American characters Oh, nice! up here uh, real fast. So that'll be interesting when that happens and that'll probably facilitate a few more projects like that. So we're going to go, this podcast is going to go viral with you breaking the news in Brazil, just in Brazil. Yeah. We got to figure out a Portuguese filter real quick. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) Like I, I can say no in Portuguese because it is no. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You also had a like a stint in there with Fangoria too, right? Yeah. Oh man, that that's was this that's during the time episode. when they weren't paying people, or was this during the better times? No, this is definitely in the not getting paid time. <laughs> no, the, the the long and short of it was, you know, I became. It, through through Newsarama, like I said, you meet a lot of people, and I had reviewed um, a pretty great book called Grave Girls um, that this guy Scott Lucina was a uh, part of. I met him in person at one of the Chicago Wizard World Chicago shows, and it was kind of funny because um, I had a friend named Jane Jellidge that passed away uh, many years ago, and when I happened upon where Scott's booth was, I, ha- I stopped 
because this guy looked a lot like James and it freaked me out. Uh-huh. And then when I realized that it was this guy that I had <laughs> conversations with online, that was really weird. Um, but we started talking and we talked about doing some work together and uh, he had a couple of things, uh, a couple of um, book adaptations in the comics they were going to work on. And so I was going to do some stuff with midnight show. And one day he called me and he said, Hey man, we're not going to be midnight show anymore. We're going to be Fangoria. I was mm. like, what? And he had made the deal to do the Fangoria comics in print. And this was around 2006, okay. 2007, you know, that happened. <laughs> Fangoria comics in print. And, you know, I'm, I was the associate editor on it. If you find any of those books bump beneath the Valley of the rage, strange land, et cetera, you know, there's my name, the associate editor, Troy Brownfield. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was really cool to start with the bump books sold really well. They were on newsstands. They weren't just in comic shops, but um, Fango racked them right next to Fangorian Starlog on the racks. Wow. And they sold quite a few through Barnes and Noble and whatnot, but it was through the time where uh, the company was pretty insolvent. <laughs> they had announced that movie studio deal and they had the radio shows and all this different stuff. Mm-hmm. And when they started sliding toward the bankruptcy, the first thing to go was the comics. And even though they had been making money and they'd been coming out for many months, they just whacked the line all of a sudden. They didn't let some of the minis that were in progress finish. It was just one day they were just, and so it was one of those things where it's like a, a, a high high to see your name in a Fango book and to have grown up stealing looks at Fangoria in the, you know, magazine section of Wolco and stuff. And yeah, <laughs> you know, things. And then you see your name in a Fangoria book. And I was writing some stuff on the Fangoria website. And then all of a sudden, the comics were gone. And oh, and we, we had um, went to San Diego Comic Con on a Fangoria. Michael Madsen was involved in creating a book. We we're hanging out with Madsen and everything. It was crazy. It was like very soon after San Diego that that happened. So you had this kind of crazy high of doing that and you know then a couple weeks later (laughs) which is comics in a nutshell yeah (laughs) that is is comics kids you you have a lot of divergences like you know and i know you've you've had uh one podcasting life become another podcasting life Mm -hmm. and you worked in spaces involving movies and everything before you know how it is where you kind of move from from one thing you kind of I, I don't want to be one of those assholes who says it's like a shark man you got to keep swimming and stuff but you do <laughs> well, yeah, yeah all the bullshit yeah it's true it's just kinder than it sounds mm-hmm. and you end up doing things that if you'd have told your younger self that you'd either you either wouldn't believe them or be like i'd be happy doing what yeah it wasn't I the think, dream <laughs> yeah I, I i think that it, it on one level it's kind of funny that um in the past two years, the thing I've written most outside of the Saturday Evening Post is the Topps Trading Cards. Okay. And I've written a lot of Topps Trading Cards, mostly Star Wars stuff, like mm-hmm. the Mandalorian Season 1, the 2020 and 2021 Masterworks and all that. I wrote all of those. And it's not something that you can easily hand somebody. <laughs> right. Say. But it, it has been a very consistent field of work and and sometimes it can be just really fun yeah there's there's deadline pressure and things within you have to be exacting about certain things but man it is really funny to think i just got 
paid to write a card about Chewbacca. That's so weird. That, that. <laughs> right. And and the fact the, the, the beauty of it is too. And I, one thing I saw from meeting you, cause we had once worked together at a place yeah, yeah. and discovered each other and enjoy thing. But one thing about you is like finding out you're a comic writer from here. We're in Indianapolis, Indiana. Like, well, you can do that from here. They don't force you to go. Like just the thought of myself, like being like, I am happy happier artistically and feel more accomplished than I ever was when I was living in Los Angeles in the place you got to be to do this kind of stuff. And it's odd that it's happened here mentally and, you know, actually on paper, like it's weird, but you can do that. Yeah. I, you know, uh, God bless the internet, right? right. <laughs> you know, yes. You've got that. You've, you've got, um, I think that a lot of us that grew up with, kind of 70s and 80s comics we had the idea of the marvel bullpen that everybody kind of clocked in and we're all in a big clubhouse or whatever mm-hmm. but uh even then you know you didn't think of the freelance artists who had to be mailing their stuff in but just the the kind of democratization of technology artists can draw from anywhere without even using paper anymore yeah. <laughs> and writers can write conceivably from anywhere so a lot of the kind of friendships you make in comics really do originate online and then you know it's kind of a treat when you meet slash get to see some of these people at conventions and whatnot that's really you know the kind of for me has always been the the good thing about conventions has been seeing people and you know it's just one of those uh happy byproducts of it that you can actually do this from afar, like the, I mentioned the Brazilian guys, uh, Paulo, uh, Yonami and Cuber ball, for example, they both worked to degrees on the blood queen stuff I did for dynamite. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just happened to really like those guys. And, you know, <laughs> as we worked on this stuff together, it was it, just people you kind of stay in touch with, you know, and you're able to do stuff. Um, right. One of the things they say they say it about all writing, and it's particularly true in comics. But three things that will keep you working are uh, being on time, being nice, and being good. And if you can get two of the three, you'll get to keep working. <laughs> and so, I think there's less than that that if you just are kind of you know genuine with people and and uh, form those relationships that a lot of times uh when when people are in a position to uh distribute work among others then they will want to do it with their friends or the people who are nice to them or the people who help them out and i think that you know that's a positive cycle to perpetuate for sure for sure yeah doing all you mentioned the the cards you've been doing you've been on uh currently you're with uh graphic policy and of course the saturday evening post which has been your gig for a couple years now and over 300 pieces. Three, yeah. So 100 pieces <laughs> that's a year. Right. That, you know, that, that's, uh, I, I mainly put that to amuse myself because I, I noticed it um, one day. Let's see, I, my first day in was uh, June 14th, um, 2018. And uh, I, I first noticed kind of the ticker mm-hmm. within... Um, because you know, like just about everybody else, we <laughs> excuse me, a WordPress 
kind of system mm-hmm. and it breaks up the posts like who's and it, i just noticed it one day I'm like, wow i'm in the 90s i gotta say something about the hundredth and then as it went on I'm like man i'm gonna really be racking these up over time <laughs> so i would started kind of like making the joke about my 299th post and it was just but it feels good to be that productive i mean you have a lot of material out there and i get a lot of opportunities at the post to write about uh, really cool stuff i get i've done a lot of american history bits which is one of the posts bags but also i really get to determine a lot of the stuff that i write about gotcha. you know it, i mean there's not a lot of places where you can come in and say i want to write about the elric saga <laughs> and everybody will say huh or, or you know i i get a lot of latitude to write some of those things i mean like this a, week i'm writing about duran duran and you know i don't i don't think people realize how eclectic the posts on the saturday evening post are like and i think it's a totally underappreciated underseed place because i mean even outside of your stuff like they post stuff that i'm like oh that's interesting this and it's it's an interesting little a bit a uh, bit of place that i think people if they would go to it they'd like it a lot more it's like well-rounded got weird stuff got interesting takes on normal stuff but like yeah this. it one of the one of the things i really like about it is that there is kind of a a two-way vibe with the post and you have the the historical post that's the you know celebrating america past present and future kind of tagline and the things that they do and 200 literal years of post history because it was 1821 when it started mm-hmm. uh, fall, uh, late summer of 1821. So you have 200 years of this history to go back on the, the post is literally seen the civil war. Yeah. <laughs> they, they reported on, they, they embedded guys with the army in world war one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so this, these archives exist, this material that so you can draw from all that. And so um, a lot of the stuff that Jeff Nielsen writes in particular, um, who's our archivist of Ben Relton, who's an American history professor, um, they do it with this incredible perspective and all this material mm-hmm. that's available uh, from the history of the post. So you have kind of this lane, and then you have this lane over here, which is what I call not, not just Americana, but like American culture is popular culture. Right. If you look at say, French culture, you have hundreds of years of art and architecture and cuisine and, you know, up all kinds of history going back and forth. And England's the same way. And then you get to the States where, you know, a lot of the stuff that came out of America, the way that movies worked, you know, I'll do respect to Melier and everything. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it informed the, the world's, Culture, so in a way, American culture, from a certain point on, I'll is say London owned culture. the '60s, though. Yeah, uh, London owned the '60s. Yeah, we did. Uh, the Post did have Joan Didion writing about Hate Ashbury. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they they did have that, but yeah, and and of course the, I mean, hell, man, the Beatles when they went to India, mm-hmm. a reporter from the Post went with them. Oh, okay. That's when they when they met the Maharishi. Yeah, there that was two post cover stories. Was the Beatles and <laughs> so Damn. I um, I haven't gotten to do that, but I have gotten to go to D.C. and San Jose and do some other cool stuff. And um, I got to be inside of Facebook and Google both, which was weird. Oh, um, cool. So I've done 
more newsy things. Got to go to Politico, been at the Washington Press Club. So we had some weird stuff that's like very newsy. But a lot of the times when you know I get the opportunity, I'm like, this week about Bigfoot. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> Two blood brothers out for each other. You have found the power which is rightly mine. How? The firstborn brother, they called him Voltan. Enter, God One. The devil's agent, the servant of evil. Kill him! The secondborn brother. They called him Hawk. He had one secret weapon, the ancient power of the Sword of Mind, and he was out for revenge. Last thing you will ever see is the woman you love. In my arm. I am ready. Two brothers, two armies, two forces of good and evil. Voltan's army, the Devil's army, and Hawks. A dwarf. A giant. An elfin bowman. A witch. And Hawk. Together, they took on the mighty Voltan. Together, they took on the Devil's Agent. Two blood brothers, with only blood between them. Beyond the edge of darkness, there is a world of sword and sorcery. Hawk the Slayer is directed by Terry Marcel, written by uh, Marcel and Harry Robertson, starring Jack Palance, John Terry, Patricia Quinn, Bernard Breslau, Peter O'Farrell, Cheryl Campbell, and Catriona McColl. And it is a uh, long story short, with the aid of his companions, a man seeks to defeat his evil brother who has taken a nun hostage. So Troy, as always with these films, Hawk the Slayer, why you bring it to the table? couple things. Um, this week at The Post, I just did a big article on Sword and Sorcery Boom of the 1980s, of which Hawk is obviously a part, and in a way, one of the forerunners, because it came out in 1980. Uh, the reason I chose this particular time to do the article um, was because exactly 40 years ago, June of 1981, mm-hmm. Clash of the Titans and Dragon Slayer opened two weeks apart from each other. Uh, Clash of the Titans opened June 12th against Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> and Dragon Slayer opened a couple weeks later. Um, 
One of the interesting things about that real quick is Clash of the Titans actually finished 11th for the year at the box office. It had a really strong year. People weirdly have kind of written it off as like some kind of bomb, and it wasn't. It was a huge hit. It made right. a shitload of money. It's weird how some people like think of things that aren't true. Just I don't know, because maybe the effects became a little... They're still rad. They're Harryhausen, but they became yeah. a more obvious. They're like, oh, cheesy movie. I'm like, it wasn't. It was an effects yeah. masterpiece at the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and... The thing with, with for me with Hawk, I actually the first time I heard about it, it's I picked the four quad UK poster here to pass my backdrop because uh, that's the first image I saw of Hawk the Slayer was in a Starlog mm-hmm. magazine. They had this poster. They're talking about this movie. It was a UK only release as far as I knew at the time. You know, it was like seven or eight, and I didn't see it until couple maybe three years later on uh sammy terry in indianapolis for those who don't know sammy terry was our local horror host and they would have genre movies and whatnot and so i saw hawk the slayer on tv for the first time and i loved it (laughs) and i even then i knew that there were some cheeseball elements to it because by that point you know it was maybe roughly nine or ten i'd already seen Logan's Run, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Empire. You know, I'd seen the good, some pretty good ones and some pretty bad ones. Yeah, this already came out at that the point. same year Empire Strikes Back came out. Yeah, yeah. I saw. You know, I, I I saw Star Crash at the uh, drive-in. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so you you had the span. You 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 knew. Um, but man, I, I there's a lot I loved about it. And throughout the rest of the '80s, there just turned out to be a whole lot of movies and the same flavor. And I, I kind of write it off in a way. And you already mentioned this, Brandon, that when people get to a certain age that were fans of a thing, they can now bring that in because they're the ones making the movies. And I think that there are a lot of these guys, particularly in England and certain parts of the States who probably grew up on Tolkien and Michael Moorcock and, yeah. You know, they got to the point where it's like, we can make movies now. We're doing this. <laughs> right, Luke, <laughs> and Lucas and Spielberg, basically, yeah. Yeah, and and now, you know, Kevin Feige. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when he got the reins, look what he did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you do have this. And, and it, you know, you mentioned Marcel and Robertson. Marcel directing the movie, Robertson producing. The two of them wrote it together. Robertson, the composer which we should also spend some time on in talking about Hawk the Slayer, but, <laughs> but it's, you, you know, that these two guys had an affinity for this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And well, there's a lot yeah. like with, with Robertson too, he comes from, he was a music guy for hammer, a lot of hammer stuff. So yeah, he, he did all the Karnstein movies. Ah, uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. He did, know, yeah. That whole trilogy. Yeah. Lust uh, for vampire vampire. Yeah. I, you got your, I, uh, I wore, an Excalibur t-shirt to go with. There we go. Fair <laughs> Closest enough. I had. But yeah, so it was... Uh... But, but yeah, so he's yeah he's unhammered. There's a lot of talent here that I was like... So Marcel, he had a movie called There Goes the Bride, which he had John Terry was in it before this. Yeah. And uh, there was a once mother's brother in it. Um, <laughs> and he'd go on to make Prisoners of the Lost Universe. But he was also a second unit director on Straw Dogs and Three Pink or three or four Pink Panther movies and the Ridley Scott movie, The Duelist, his first movie. And then 
When you go to cinematographer, uh, yeah, Paul Beeson, he did a lot of Magical World of Disney in the 60s, The Saint, and then he he did Moon Zero 2, Miss MST3K fans, you'll know that yeah. one. Star Crash, he, sh- he shot that, uh, but he, his additional photography is where he stands out, so he does Swiss Family Robinson, Sound of Music, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of That's Doom, awesome. Last Crusade, Ishtar, Willow, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Alien 3. Big deal. Like, yeah, you say, he's, he's the guy, oh, sorry, he, I was going to say, he's the guy they actually hung out of the helicopter to shoot Julie Andrews on the opening mm-hmm. hillside. Yeah. Sequence. Like that's crazy. <laughs> and he works on Hawk. He shoots Hawk the Slayer like that. Yeah. Uh, but, that's the gamut. That, that's, that's showbiz kids. Yeah. And then editor ed- Eric Boyd Perkins obviously was a friend of Robertson. Cause he was an editor for a lot of hammer films as well. So they crossed paths there. Um, including like the Gorgon, Mo- Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, She, Night Creatures. Uh, but he also, uh, he did episode three episodes of The Prisoner. He edited the and edited The Wicker Man. And he also did additional editing on For Your Eyes Only, ADR for The Monster Squad and Clue, and additional sound editing for Bridge on the River, River Kwai. So people here had some cred or would go on to have even more cred later on. It's pretty interesting for this production to have all this talent and then they're all stuffed in a room with five bucks basically. But yeah, I'll argue for what they have, things work like that. At the opening scene, we get um, this uh, Elven stone thing that floats over, which now in yeah. HD, you can kind of see the string getting ready, but it floats over to this hilt that has a hand on it and it opens up and grabs it. And that looks good. I Yeah. That's a good effect. That- you know, um, it's what Stephen King called the the set of reality mm-hmm. that, you know, if you grew up watching Bonanza, you think that the Ponderosa Ranch and everything is a real ranch. Yeah. And then later you look at it as an adult and you realize, oh, it's a set. Yeah. The trees are fake and everything. And so then you kind of lose that. And I think that's definitely something with Hawk. You come at it as a kid. Yeah. And you haven't seen a movie like this necessarily. Right. You have to contextualize it too for, for, for the audience. When you think about 1980s pre Conan, it's pre Beastmaster, it's pre, you know, all kinds of stuff that you would, you know, and really it comes out just a couple of months or so after Empire. Mm-hmm. So it's not. It got lapped Empire's before it even got on the track. Yeah. Later in yeah. 80. yeah. Yeah. And it's. You you look at probably the the grandest jump. Logan's Run is a good, entertaining movie, and Mm -hmm. it's got effects that were great at the time. They win the Oscar in 76. But Logan's Run over here and Star Wars over here. (laughs) One year. Yeah. One year. Yeah. That's a huge, that is is an actual paradigm shift for people who love to use that phrase Mm -hmm. uh, for we're redecorating the office. You know, a paradigm shift is, is Logan's Run to Star Wars. And you still had a lot of productions. You know, Lucas had everybody. Lucas got the craftsman. He had mm-hmm. Dykstra to start with, and you know, he created ILM and stuff. And a lot of the other places just didn't have people like that. No. And so they're still working on, for lack of a better word, the Logan's Run plateau, where this was done by ITC. So ITC and BBC were, were used to kind of working on the cheap. Yeah. <laughs> Consider Doctor Who, you know, which we love and everything, but, you know, they they knew how to squeeze a nickel to try to get stuff on the screen. Right. But I mean, I will give the BBC 
incredible set builders, especially period oh. design. Even though now you can, you know, there's sets and stuff. But I'm like, man, the detail, and I have a fondness for just freaking sets, like, you know, old school, new, you know, TV stuff. I just love the thought of people beating hammers, getting it all, like little designs, and just I have an appreciation for that, and people physically being in the realm. Yeah, definitely. Some of the best looking stuff in Hawk the Slayer is outside. Yeah, I mean, you just—it's hard to hard to beat an English forest, you know. That they, uh, I particularly that one like of the, the scenes I really like in the movie is the camp attack. Works really well outside with the fog and everything. Yeah, d- no, definitely. Um, I like the just the exterior of the convent church or whatever. That just looks really cool to me. I don't know why it's some simple little set, um, but also I got to throw in a love. And I know my listeners are very, I love matte paintings. Anytime you decorate with matte paintings, love it. Love it. Favorite matte painter of all time, James Cameron. Um, He's a good guy. He didn't do this film, but I will point out always that he was my favorite matte painter. He didn't escape from New York. He did the matte paintings for that. Nice. Becky and the boys and I watched Silverado the other night. Mm -hmm. And that was one of those things that I said, you know, appreciate that this was just shot outside mm-hmm. <laughs> this this incredible scenery is someone just pointing a camera in in one direction and just look what you get yeah and so Big, i i do think hit. that this benefits from from some of those scenes for sure but i i think that for me one of the engines of the movie is like basic mythology okay. the idea of good brother evil brother magic sword you know <laughs> this right, stuff right. is pretty pretty fundamental but i'd also challenge anybody to find too many movies before this that did any of that there weren't a lot <laughs> might have been a know. biblical epic but yeah <laughs> that's exactly what i was thinking demetrius of the gladiators you don't have a whole hell of a lot of this jason and the argonauts maybe like it's mm-hmm. stuff that was expressly based on myth yeah not expressly based on the fantasy genre Disney was doing fairy tales and you had a couple of like the original uh, Jack, the giant slayer and, and a few other Harryhausen enterprises, the first Sinbad movie. Mm-hmm. Not a lot like this. No. And this is pre Conan before everybody starts knocking it off. It's really, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting because it feels like they're all like all these things come in the wake of Conan, the barbarian, but they're not, they start before that. They kind of come in the wake of, Star Wars for some reason there's Star Wars exploitation and then you get a big push in fantasy which is quite interesting Hawk the Slayer like the the cast like some of the cast like Jack Palance is here and he's playing Darth Vader kind of with that yeah. helmet uh, and Voltan he, in this movie he wavers between being really invested in it and then yawning through some scenes like it's it's a real back and forth. Like I've there in moments I'm like, I don't think he really wants to be here. And then someone's like, Oh geez, like he's really selling this. But it's a, it's interesting throughout the, the film, how he his back and forth. It's, I don't know if he got called back for some reshoots he didn't want to do or in that one of the film, but yeah, he has, um, I really like the, the scene where, the, the guys have all been taken captive and he's kind of mocking them. And he has that great delivery of the dwarf and all the bad guys yes. laugh. I'm like, that, that's just top flight balance right there. That's, you know, that's him going full scenery chew. But 
Right. <laughs> it's, but yeah, he, he's a weird presence. He's one of those, one of those guys that um, for decades and decades played almost nothing but bad guys. And he leans into the expectation you have of him pretty hard. So there's not a lot of, right. Not a lot of subtlety. anywhere. <laughs> and and Ter- Ter- I think Terry does a good job as kind of the taciturn hero man mm-hmm. on a mission of, of vengeance, et cetera. He, he kind of holds his own against Palance, which is basically all you could ask. But the, the funny thing is his brother, 39 years <laughs> difference. Age, that's what I was just about and his to father, say. only three. Yeah, the, the actor who played his dad is only three years older than so. But I, I love that, you know, kind of the inventiveness of it. But you've got Hawk is dressed like Han Solo. There's no oh, way yeah. around it. He's oh, wearing, yeah. <laughs> wearing Han's, Han's clothes. I mean, like you mentioned the Darth Vader thing. And, and he kind of looks like Bronson Pinchot a little bit. Like if you get him at the right <laughs> angle, I'm like. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like John Terry, like, of course he was, I mean, a lot of people know him as Jack's dad from Lost. He would be yeah. F- Felix Leiter seven years later in The Living Daylights. Um, he'd, you know, he's had some notable stints on like, I think he was on ER for a bit and people yeah. know him. He, he's, he's, a, he's been around. He's, he's a, but not as a lead so much yeah. on Lost because of Hawk the Slayer. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, of course, of course. Yeah. If we're talking actors, we should mention a couple others for sure. Uh, Bernard Breslau, who plays Gort the Giant, was also Rel the Cyclops from Kroll. So yeah. he was a lot he, of work. He's got the cred <laughs> for these 80s fantasy. And they also, which reminded me, um, uh, from Rocky Horror, uh, Patricia, um, yeah. she wears that that uh, thing around her face that has the, the uh, Cyclops eye, which reminded me of Kroll um, when watching it. Yeah, and I love that her character's name is Woman. Yeah. <laughs> it's just just Woman. Um but it's uh it, it's a super interesting take because there's a lot of stuff that's implied about the world building that they mm-hmm. did. You know, it, it's a good week for that because there's a meme going around like one of the variations of the Peter and Mary Jane meme from the first Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. That's where he tells her something hurtful and he says, um, you have to stop at some point, you have to stop world building to actually write the story. But the, they, they obviously thought about the story and that this takes place in the context of other things happening because they talk about armies massing in different places and that Voltan has conquered kind of this part of it, but that there's other stuff going yeah. on. So they had a context to it. The giants, the elves and the dwarves are gone. Hawk's friends are the last of their kind, yeah. <laughs> which lends itself to, hey, what else has been happening here? How did Hawk become friends with these guys? What was the 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 context of that? It it poses world questions, which are kind of interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of time between the opening scene and the, the when the story picks up, and I'm I'm not sure. Is the the marriage stuff, the girl thing, does that happen after the opening scene, or did that happen before the opening scene? I think it happens before the opening scene because I, think I was thinking, but I'm like, I was just thinking right now. I was like, wait, maybe it could have happened in between. I don't know. I, right. I get the feeling that like maybe Elaine has died in a hawk as because he was injured in the boat mm-hmm. and then recovers, goes after Voltan. Voltan kills their dad. He gets the mind okay. stone. Yeah, and, I mean that's 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 what true. I, that's where he's set up. Which is, 
I will say his uh, wife, played by Catriona McCall, who is famous from uh, Lucio Fulci movies. She's yeah. in the Gates of Hell trilogy. I love her as an actor. Like I'm a big fan of hers, actually. Um, a lot. I discovered her with those films, but I anytime I can find something new to see her in, I'm, I'm really excited by it because I, I don't think she, when they talk about final girls, scream queens, whatever, she doesn't get mentioned, and I think she should be up there. She's quite terrific and leads a hell of an awesome uh, Italian horror trilogy of movies. But she's here to, you know, be like a prize to be won and then murdered. So. <laughs> well, you know, I... It, it is it is cast well, I think. Yeah. I the I don't know much about the uh, actor who plays Crow the Elf, but I like his kind of deadpan delivery. Mm-hmm. He he does have kind of an otherworldly presence, and it right. runs up nicely against uh, Ralph, the one-handed crossbowman. Yeah, the, that guy is great. In the uh, he reminds me now. He makes me think of uh, Liam Cunningham. In uh, Game of Thrones, Sir Davos, he's got that same kind of, he's got right. Sir Davos energy. Like he's the old guy that's kind of seen it all and he's still alive and he's missing a hand, but you know, damn it, he's not going to let him kill a bunch of nuns. <laughs> it's just, right. It, oh, we, we, we mentioned Doctor Who earlier and I got to, I got to point out that um, Christopher Benjamin's in here. Uh, and the, he's the guy doing the archery. Oh um, yeah, gambling, and he was uh, notable. He played. Uh, he was in Doctor Who, um, one of the most classic Tom Baker stories, Talons of Wang Chien. He played Jago of the popular Jago and Lightfoot team up, which I think Big Finish has made spinoffs of the his character and another one. They're kind of like a Sherlock and Holmes duo that were paired with the Doctor in that story. But he was also a New Who. In the Unicorn and the Wasp episode with uh, during the David Tennant time, which was the Agatha Christie episode, yes. but he's the guy betting all the archery in the woods. So another, yeah. And and speaking of the archery, that my my son Connor, my sixteen year old, his his favorite thing about the movies is mm-hmm. the super fast archery. Yeah, super the, fast. The, just the crazy idea of the the automatic crossbow and the crow shoots just as fast. But there's there's one one scene at the fight in the abbey mm-hmm. where crow is doing the rapid fire he's doing the rapid fire archery but the camera is moving with each shot yeah so it gives the illusion that he's maybe actually pulling knocking and firing with each but it's just the camera just could you imagine cutting that this is right. film this isn't like yeah. digital stuff we could do today that that had been a pain in the ass and they do it a lot it's not like it's yeah. just one cool effect and then they maybe show it later but it's a lot. Yeah, it's it's present. It's part of the to get to get all film school. It is part of the visual language of the piece. I mean, they really and I, lean in. I will mention with this movie one thing I I really like think is pretty rad about this. Um, aside from Catriona McCall, people survive getting hit by these arrows a lot in the movie. Like people don't die. They like there are kill shots, and then people are just like, well, I'll be better in the next seed. Like it's stunning. Uh, like. <laughs> Ralph, he gets he gets one. Does Hawk get one too? Yeah, I think he he, he shot um that something. the boat scene toward toward the whole thing where uh, Elaine dies. He's he's yeah. actually shot. yeah. There's a lot of people get shot with arrows like deep, and they survive. I'm like okay, all right, that's pretty nifty. Most movies they'd be dead, but yeah, a lot of interesting career. I know it's funny when you take it in the context of where we are now. 
there are a couple of, there have been a couple of YouTube compilations of like goofiest scenes and they always focus on the uh silly string and neon oh. bouncy balls parts of the magic that it yeah the magic representation with the exception of the fog um is kind of goofy i dig the uh phantom zone rings where yeah, the sorceress so cool. helps like, Hawk find all of his people that's that's yeah. cool man that's well that's, here's the thing i have always said with these movies the effects don't hold up to today's standards. You know why? It was made in 1980. It wasn't a big yeah. studio movie. And and I'm not forgiving of like all movies, but I always, when I watch, I am able to put myself in the mindset of when it was made, what it had going for it, and if they're trying to do an Oscar, the silly string thing, yeah, that's probably unforgivable. Yeah. But like the rest of it, I'm like, they're, they're actually trying. They're making something. And I have, guess what? We don't have a lot as viewers anymore. Imagination. Or the ability to let <laughs> yep. to, to surrender yourself to a movie. Everybody goes into movies now like, yeah. You know, we didn't used to do that. We used to be like Hawk the Slayer, and you would somehow engulf yourself in the world. And and I I don't want to say like, oh well, that's because we don't get to see these in theaters. I was enraptured in these worlds on VHS pan and scan tapes. And when they come to Blu-ray and stuff, and they get restored. I'm even more wow. Even if I can see the strings, I'm like, you know what? This would have looked pretty nice on a big screen uh, and a clean print. But I mean, I'm able to surrender myself if I can tell that they're they're not cheap. They're talented. They're doing what they can in the time er- the era that they did with what was available. So yeah, and this is something that people would want to beat up and say that there's oh this is a plot hole or whatever and again people on the internet have a very poor understanding of what a plot hole actually is they suck at watching movies <laughs> yeah the, I, I will give you that you have to suspend a lot of disbelief if you watch 24 because mm-hmm. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland cannot drive across Los Angeles on a commercial oh, break hell no <laughs> but, but you know that one aside Crow saying he's the last elf, and they well, they never explained what happened to the elves. That's not a plot hole, man. That's no. you we know, that's... If, if the characters understand, like, there's also the coin, like, give us coin. Why was it? It was just a because signal, so, like, in a previous adventure, Hawk met these guys and yeah. said, If you ever need me, give me this coin. People and, aren't able to think to put things together in their heads with stuff or just work. A lot. Not everything matters. Not everything is bullshit. We don't need backstories of this. this. Like that's why we have these bloated, like two and a half hour movies. Like this thing gets out of here in a swift ninety minutes, and I'm set, like, gets the basics down. You don't need everything. And guess what? The whole gang, they don't need to be deep. The the dwarf and the the giant, they they play a C three PO R two D two role. Like and that's yeah. all they need to be. We don't need you know. Yeah. They- they are comic relief, mm-hmm. and the the giant is the strong. Think of it too in the the um, eternal, you know, seven samurai, magnificent seven, dirty mm-hmm. dozen kind of. Everybody's yeah. kind of the, the the giant is the muscle. Yeah, he had the. They're also the comic relief. Crow is the silent but you know, lethal member of the team. <laughs> he's, the, he's the cold-hearted badass. He's the the Clint Eastwood guy that comes into yeah. the team like yeah the piece of the dead you know yeah. <laughs> he's a <like>, guy that <laughs> the, the, the one guy in the group that always says the weird shit yes That's, yeah it, it, it it's well put together in, in terms of that um i think i think we've kind of held off long enough but i've, I've got to get into the uh the music oh the harry robertson 
Holy Very shit, do I love the music of this sci-fi movie. Di- sci-fi disco shit is my jam. I will tell you yeah. what, yeah. Oh. By, by way of Enrico Morricone, it, it's, right. it's just that, you know, and it's just... It's got that it, Italian exploitation, like goblin-esque kind of feel to it at times. Yeah. yeah. It's all, it's and, so rad. Yeah, and, and it breaks out all the time. And the, the little whistle slash hawk noise, whatever, they, they use it repeated. Like every time he shows up when he's recruiting oh, yeah. the guys, and it, it's... Connor and I went to watch it the first time. I said, okay, man, I don't want you to expect cinematic perfection from this movie, but this movie is cinematic perfection. <laughs> <laughs> and about the third or fourth time that they did the hawk noise, he's like, I get it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? I've been like, entranced. Yeah, I get it. But it, you have to think that the guys, actors' experiences can vary. You have to think that Marcel and Robertson had a huge amount of fun making this thing. I oh, mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, who sits down and writes that soundtrack without just enjoying the hell out of themselves? I mean, <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. No, all the, like these, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get in this fantasy genre as a whole to wrap when we wrap it up. But yeah, like there's, I mean, this movie, when you break it down stuff, there's a lot of just like traveling in the woods stuff that happens in the movie that I'm just like, oh, they did kind of a clever way of mixing it up with these little different showcases, scenarios, like each member kind of gets their own little uh, snippet to introduce the the people the, to it. Um, yeah. I did notice there was this weird kind of uh, parallels to Monty Python and the Holy Grail that incidentally <laughs> happened in this, where like Hawk yeah. comes upon the... Um, the woman at, and she's like there it's clearly the bad witch scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I was like, How do you know she's a witch? I was like, What? <laughs> uh, and then there's the scene Build the bridge out of her. The scene where Voltan and his son come upon these peasants eating, and it's <laughs> very much the uh Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis scene from Monty Python. I was like, Are they was this intentional? Were they trying to do serious versions? Like, oh my gosh, this is hilarious. But I was like, what more? There's possibly more here because he does go around to get his band. But uh, I, I just couldn't believe it. And then they're in a convent with a bunch of nuns too. So, I mean, hey, that that's up there too. But it was like weird parallels with the <laughs> Holy Grail that I couldn't believe were happening. Is that, do you think that that's just something that's maybe uniquely British? That Might be. They, they at some point they're working on the movie and they say, "Man, we we unconsciously wrote the same kind of fantasy trope scenes that are in Holy Grail. We might as well just lean into it, right? Yeah, <laughs> just play it straight. Let's just do it. People will notice or they won't. <laughs> there will be these things called podcasts in forty years. They're gonna notice it, but right now we're safe. One of the things I I was reading that this was apparently a take on Yojimbo, but I got none of that. No, I wouldn't. That that's a weird. Kind of take. I mean, you know, I think Yojimbo, you have to expressly be pitting two forces against two, each other with, with one the person. Middle. And there was none of but that. It, it does vibe Kurosawa with the yeah. men on a mission thing. I mean, certainly. I think whoever made the remark, I think they just got their movie wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I find that the, the, there's an awful lot of stuff written about movies that people try to do from memory without going back to look at it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's very easily. Hey, that's wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, because I think the whole point of Yojimbo that you see 
I mean, hell, Yojimbo is itself adapted from Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett, mm-hmm. the Continental Op, and then you know becomes Yojimbo and then Fistful of Dollars. It's all one guy. It's the guy alone in the situation. So I would, I think that's just a misread. Gotcha. What comes before Kurosawa assembling the seven samurai, like the last thing before that is like maybe the three musketeers, the merry men, Jason and the Argonauts. (laughs) Right. You know, it's, it's, it's getting the, getting the band together as a longstanding. (laughs) True. True. I mean, hell, uh, if if they if you're thinking of these guys operating in 1980 and having come from maybe like the Tolkien cult and everything, yeah, I mean, what what is the fellowship if not Kurosawa getting the band together? <laughs> right. I I will say we were always but, speaking of the Tolkien in the 80s. We were uh, robbed of the John Borman Lord of the Rings, but we were gifted Excalibur, which is awesome. But <sighs> it's so yeah. I always wonder like what would that John Borman Lord of the Rings have looked like. And I look at Excalibur, I'm like, that'd have been an interesting movie seeing Lord of the Rings done back then. But I bet you Helen Mirren would have been a uh, Gladriel. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. That's, that that's probably that. You know, just to take a side step because I did talk about Excalibur in the the post piece. Mm-hmm. Um, what an eye for talent. Yeah. Holy shit! I mean, just like all these guys that it's their first movie. Yeah. Like Liam Neeson, Gabriel Byrne, so just going down the list. I mean, what a murderer's row of people to just pick up. And and, and if you look at Liam Neeson, he did a lot of these movies mm-hmm. for a while. The yeah. season crawl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he serves up there, yeah. It's like, what do we do with the tall Irish guy? Send him to the sword and sorcery stuff. <laughs> it just you know, build up a resume there. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh this movie was Supposed to have a sequel, Hawk the Destroyer, which is funny because that would be Conan's sequel. Yeah. But, and like, because we're led to like, oh, uh, it's the evil wizard uh, says he's going to resurrect Voltan. And then Hawk is told like, oh, you got to go down south and fight evil. So to another day, but that never. Yeah, comes. the wizards are gathering in the south. But unlike today, when you do that, yeah, this movie's a complete pers- film. <laughs> like it's, it's start, finish, done little cliffhanger we're out yeah they talked about that then a few years ago they talked about a different idea of a hawk movie called hawk the hunter which would have Mm -hmm. been a a prequel which i imagine would have been hawk meeting everybody for the first time or something but but you know if you do frankly you know in 2021 if you do hawk the slayer now you just have to redo hawk the slayer right (laughs) it's you know hard to make a sequel 41 years later i mean they, they ran into that with sword of the sorcerer too they tried to remake they, they tried to do a, a sequel to that mm-hmm. you know and it, it was they turned out making sort of a sequel <laughs> <laughs> like tales of the empire or something and like lee right. horsley's in it but it's a lot of these films conan notwithstanding the the sequel idea didn't you know, the ones that happened, like the Beastmaster sequels were pretty bad. Yeah. And it was, it was, what do you chasing... mean through the portal of time rules? Yeah. Yeah. Said nobody. <laughs> I would, all these films that we're talking about were, were huge second life on video or cable films. And mm-hmm. so the impact, like the, the real popularity, some of them had didn't happen for years. Yeah. Excalibur, we mentioned in Clash of the Titans, those were solid hits. Dragon Slayer underperformed. Hawk the Slayer, who the hell knows? <laughs> right. Um, but 
Beastmaster did okay in, yeah. in the theaters. It was it was fine. It was a reasonable movie, and my God, did it live on on HBO and basic cable. Right, yeah. Like, I couldn't find it. I tried to find it to put it into the article, but you probably remember this. TBS used to run commercials about how much they played Beastmaster. They did, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Shawshank Redemption of the fantasy films, sword and sorcery films, yeah. Yeah, and it was like a real enthusiastic, it's like, um, you know, movies made him a star, but we made him a legend. Yes. <laughs> I remember that, yes, yeah. And, and uh, I forget which comedian it was. It wasn't Pat Oswald, but some of them with the same vibe said HBO in the 1980s stood for Hey, Beastmasters on. Yes, yep. Uh, they actually yeah. on the on the Vinegar Syndrome 4K Ultra HD uh release, they have a section dedicated to that and they have like Adam Wingard and Robert Cardell and people talking about their love of Beastmaster and having it come from watching it on TV and they talk about hey Beastmasters on with that too. Yeah. Yeah, this was um where I grew up in Terre Haute and that was one of the benefits of the drive-in. Mhm was you would see crazy shit at the drive-in. Like I didn't see Beastmaster at the at the drive-in. And like I mentioned before, Star Crash, fantastic plan at the animated film. I oh, saw the drive-in. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So in the in the realm of like all these fantasy films of let's say like the early nineteen eighties and um let's throw Conan out of there because that's obviously yeah. one of the stands at all. But where do you hold Hawk in this lexicon? Is it your favorite or I you know, it, it's it's a weird thing. Um, I love Hawk. It's uh, in, in the way that you know you have songs that you love from your childhood. Ever, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a it's not a perfect movie. Yeah, but um, yeah, I posted a picture today that was some of the DVDs and, and whatnot that went into it, and, and those are those are my real favorites. I'll. I'll got to toss Conan back in there. Yeah. But, you know, Hawk and Beastmaster more than say Kroll and Sword and the Sorcerer, but I you know, love those two for various reasons, but yeah, you know, Hawk and Beastmaster are probably my two favorites gotcha. of the of the group. And I think Beastmaster, man, all props to Coscarelli. That is that is a complete movie. That, that is a tight one. film. Like it is a really well done film. Literally everything pays off. Like everything's got to set up to it and and executed like they they set stuff up all the way along and mm-hmm. whatever the bat slash owl slash crazy whatever the hell they are people like the thing with the medallion and it's right. just what a what a little swiss watch that is <laughs> definitely definitely i'm a I personally i'm a big fan of kroll um oh yeah it's- and i that one actually crosses that could be <laughs> That one could be seen more, uh, both fantasy and both Star Wars knockoff. That one covers both grounds. Um, yeah, but I've always enjoyed. I've always really enjoyed Crawl. I don't know why, and I've enjoyed these films now. I, like I had it as a kid, kind of like him, yeah, but now like I have more of a fondness for them now. It's just maybe because we don't get these. They don't make movies like they used to because when we get they're yeah. big CG spectacles. We get to see the dragons now. We like the movie will probably look like the poster art. Like, but there's like a fondness I have of these movies now. Definitely a lot of nostalgia lens to it. But I yeah, like Crawl. I really like Beastmaster yeah. Hawk. Yeah, Crawl um, is is interesting in that it's uh, new ideas are happening all the time. Yeah, <laughs> in that there's. The, this uh, you you start off with initially with a very strange take of 
it's a fantasy world that's been invaded by aliens. Yeah. Uh, so the Beast and the Slayer aliens, they have visual cues to alien. Mm-hmm. The Slayers are clearly monsters because when they're killed, the little things run out of their heads and burrow into the ground, which is crazy shit. Mm-hmm. But they land in a world where magic and everything already exists. Ergo yeah. is a magician. He can you know, shoot fireballs, become a fireball, become tiger and all this. <laughs> They've got cyclopses. They've got doppelgangers. Giant all this spiders and was- caves. Yeah, that stuff and already existed. So two females. One is an evil sorceress in a cave <laughs> and the other is the prize to be won. Well, she wasn't an evil sorceress all along. She didn't yeah, love you near. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> what? A, that's a weird backstory thing that they throw in all of a sudden. Oh yeah, just like the widow of the web was in love with you near when he was young. What? <laughs> it also has Liam Neeson. It's a. It's a. It is a lot of movie, and I I enjoyed it. I went and saw. I went and saw the riff tracks live of Crawl in the theater just so I could see Crawl in the theater. It wasn't so much I could laugh at it. But it was like, I have never seen Crawl on the big screen, and this is the opportunity I have through Rift Tracks to see Crawl on the big screen. And the Glaive is cool. I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah. a super Like I said, uh, I have a hard time. I have an you know, enamel pin of the, the Glaive. The movies at all. I mean, I, I genuinely enjoy Crawl. Oh, right on. I, I do think Sword and the Sorcerer, of uh, the ones that were popular, because Sword and the Sorcerer was actually a really big hit based on mm-hmm. budget. Oh, my God, did it make money. But they, it is super goofy. It, the the three bladed sword is one of the most ridiculous weapons in the history of movies, but I, I do enjoy it because everybody looks like they're having the best time. Uh, sword the sorcerer is, a, is like the cast equivalent of watching the Foo Fighters on stage. Like those guys look like they're just enjoying every freaking thing they do. And if you watch that movie, Lee Horsley looks like he's about to burst out laughing in right. every scene. He's just like, look, look, look at this! This is awesome. What am I? <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> And I was reminds me of Deathstalker too a little bit. Yeah, the first two Deathstalkers are entertaining. I will give that for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, the Deathstalker two is hilarious. Really oh yeah, hilarious. it's it's a good comedy. The first one's like you know what? Here's your straight sleazy B level, you know, Conan knockoff, and then you get a comedy version the second time around. So yeah, those are great. But it, this is like you said, man. This is a this is a thing that I I, I think uh, some people are sad they missed. Yeah. <laughs> They didn't get this this run because when we see fantasy stuff now, it's either straight to Netflix like Witcher or whatever, but it's also fairly serious, mm-hmm. you know, Shadow and Bone, and I mean Game of Thrones, obviously, but it's the the seriousness bar has been raised for all right. of the things, and I don't know if that's because people felt like they were being made fun of to the extent that they have to be very straight faced when they make them to. Well, it's, it's kind of like the comic book thing and stuff like where people, I want to, Oh no. Like they really want like really seriously taken thing. Like, no, just want, you just want the studio to get put money into it and pe- people who care about it, making it. That's, that's what you want. And then people, there's like this thing, it comes from like a lot of it, like oddly, weirdly comes from the DC side of things, like where they like really need serious version. Like if you look at their little fan base things and I'm not all DC people, I know they're not all assholes and stuff like that, but there's a lot of, there's this sect of fandom people that really want to see their things taken super seriously. And I'm like, no, you just want a good movie made. Like that's just because it's super serious doesn't mean it's, good i mean you become you go into self-parody when you go way too serious but that's uh, that's the thing that i think comes sort of backlash of years of being told comics are for kids or you'll outgrow those movies or or you know toy collecting like people 
uh, it's a backlash, which I don't think there's generations coming up that aren't going to have that because it's been acceptable now. But for yeah. a, a generation where yours and mine are, it was you were talked down to, made fun of, your movies weren't taken seriously, you got junk stuff. Like, and, and I think too that there's there's an element of a lot of the people doing that must be serious are mm-hmm. in our age group. There's a lot of guys yeah. that are in their forties, and I think that some of them have actually. Uh, for lack of a better word, or maybe it is the better word, infected <laughs> some elements of the mm-hmm. the younger fan base who really, not to be you know, not to be fogeyish about this, really haven't had to deal with that shit. Yeah, you know, if if you're 20 right now, let's even give you 21. You were eight when Iron Man broke out. Yeah, you grew up with this stuff being the biggest stuff in the world. Yeah. You you know had t-shirts and cartoons and toys and comics and they're like available everywhere at all times i can go to so, like target and walmart and buy like a star wars shirt that was not possible back when i was a kid hell man the other day it's like they had the lined up there there was literally dragon ball z star wars my hero academia avatar the last airbender you know and on the other side they had like wu-tang clan and slayer like at target like get out of here you don't know. <laughs> we're over, we're, we are oversaturated with this stuff. Like it's almost, it hurts my brain and my yeah. OCD, my anxiety about like, oh, I need all of it, right? Oh. But yeah, yeah they don't. Here, here's a, you know, that going too far field. Here's a, here's a great snapshot of exactly what you're talking about. Cast photo of the adult Shazams came out the other day. Yeah. And it's revealed that for whatever reason, I don't know what happened. They got rid of Michelle Borth, who played adult Mary Marvel, and Grace Fulton, who played Mary Broomfield, is playing both Mary and Mary Marvel. Only mm-hmm. actor in the cast who's doing that. In, in cast listings and in interviews a month ago, Michelle Borth was still talking about playing Mary Marvel. I don't know what happened, but there are a lot of guys who are like, oh, good, Grace Fulton's hot, whatever. I'm like, are you 12? Michelle Borth is gorgeous she yeah. was the you know for lack of a better word the hot chick in a lot of shows right. and she's done action she's in the first movie she's great she's yeah. great in all kinds of stuff she's in hawaii 50 and she was in uh, don't tell me you love me on hbo and everything mm-hmm. she's really good and your reaction is good what's wrong with you i like i don't even understand you know it's worse that they haven't said anything about what happened well i don't know it, it, david sandberg is also a jokester so it could be a silly thing from him I, and could be a thing in the movie. I, I don't know. I'll wait till I see the movie. But yeah, it was odd. Yeah, it was. It, I found it to be very strange. But it, but the reaction seemed to play into that kind of fanish thing. And I think that from a, from a particular segment of fandom, they've been trained to make fun of the movies that we're talking about. They, mm-hmm. they don't meet the films on their own terms. Like right. even a, they go in expecting today's terms. Yeah. Even in Excalibur, which is a really exceptional piece of filmmaking in a lot of ways, yeah. some really great performances. And Nicole Williamson is a Merlin in particular. You know, I don't think they know what they got. If they they would they would say it moves too slow. They would say that there's too much yeah. drama or romance or something. They well, there's there's a whole craft and technical thing that seems to be getting pushed aside or not appreciated and and stuff and like or not realizing there's a time and place for everything for different types of things. And, and I think there's a lot of 
uppity towards creators and directors who they seem to say they want to appreciate, but they seem to worship the studio control of things. They want Disney controlling everything or doing this. And like, while I, I think what Kevin Feige's done is great, but that's that's championing the old 60s, pre-70s, like, let the producer control it all type thing. So it's it's interesting what they're, do they know what they're wanting or what they're saying? But they yeah. seem to, there seems to be like a, a nose turn up to creative types or people with strong visions um unless yeah, it, they're under a leash like it's weird yeah they're, they're, i definitely think there's a lack of context mm-hmm. to it and, and one of the things that was cool about all of these movies with with the exception of conan which was cool in its own regard is uh they were original all of, yeah. they were all new i mean you could make your crack about oh they're not original because they're all the same well they're they they're in a genre they fit within a genre with tropes and so forth but yeah. But Hawk was written for the screen. Beastmaster was written for the screen, et cetera. Dragon Slayer down the line. I mean, Beastmaster technically is an adaptation very slightly of the right. Andre Norton story, the Beastmaster, but only to the extent of the main character could talk to animals. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. Coscarelli, everything else. But yeah, the, the majority of these films were uh, original ideas set within the sword and sorcery genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you didn't have that context of, oh, are they getting it right? You don't know. It's brand new. <laughs> and people don't give the, a shot. Like I've talked about, like the, there's been a lot of crazy, interesting, big budget science fiction films that have come out in the last decade. But if it doesn't have like, like, like uh, Valerian, um, not all of them like great, but like Jupiter Ascending, stuff like that. And I wonder if, if Guardians of the Galaxy had come out and not had a Marvel logo or been promised been part of the Marvel thing, like would that have fared like those at the box office? I, like, I don't it's, know. It's insane because I'm like, th- there's movies just as fun as Guardians or just as crazy and weird ideas that I, like, what was the one? Mortal Engines. I really liked that one, but nobody went and saw it. But there's all these like crazy, like going for it original or based off really unknown property things coming out that are fun doing all these same things but it doesn't it's not it's not a familiar name so they don't go see it like yeah it's interesting you mentioned uh guardians because uh you you will rarely find a big a fan of the dan abnett andy lanning run of guardians that directly inspired the movies as me yeah and you know the very idea that they were going to make a guardian film with those characters had me just it really excited but the fact of the matter is when they first showed the the concept art and so forth at San Diego, a lot of the online reaction was instantly on the attack. Yeah. Oh, this looks goofy. I don't understand this. I don't know what this first is. Trailer I trailer too. I people thought this. the first trailer was, there's some, you know, those serious people were like, what's this goofy, jokey stuff? Or like, Uga Chaka, what's weird? I'm like, it's got its own flavor. Like, yeah. that's what it told me. Like, this is going to be crazy. Yeah, and, and so there, there was a lot of pushback about everything and then when it when you actually see it what a crazy idea <laughs> it's awesome and yeah. so i yeah, yeah. I, I still think that's one of the best ones they've put out and yeah like it i remember i remember that came out and i was like oh well fuck, good luck star wars when you come <laughs> when you come out and yeah uh, it was just like holy crap um and yeah 
it's weird what they won't give a chance to because I, it doesn't I, come with an attached promise or name. Like you once didn't know what the hell Star Wars was, and yeah. you like yo, know, like it's crazy. I, I've made that point in many articles over the course of my writing life. You know, back to the even the college newspaper days. Everybody has to see something for the first time sometime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I did not become a big fan of David Lynch because I drew that card in the, <laughs> here's what you're interested in. Right. Deck. Um, These are my properties. To, yeah. You had to come to it in a certain way and live with it and, and learn to, you either appreciate it instantly or you, you know, were exposed to something a few times and, you know, I saw Star Wars in the theater when I was very young. It made a huge impression on me. I became a fan right away. There were mm-hmm. there were toys, there were comics. I was in. <laughs> it was it was a. That's what, I mean. I I I didn't get the seventy seven Star Wars, but for me that was Tim Burton's Batman. That was the Star Wars for me as a kid. Just changed my life seeing that movie on the big screen. And yeah, yeah, like it's, yeah, and I I don't know the uh, weird rejection out of hand of stuff that you haven't seen. I think it's, it's uh, a downer. <laughs> yeah. Like back in the nineties, everybody was pumped for independence day. No one would care about it if it came out today because we're like, what's that? Is it a re? It's not a remake. It's a uh, what? Um, I mean, well, they nobody a cared about no the one cared. but I mean, if it was this original <laughs> summer blockbuster, like, you know, like people are going to make their ideas. Like it's, it's just, I don't know. It's insane to me that people just have such limited taste or desire to branch out or try other things like i was talking recently on this show i'm like it's called the brandon peter show because there's other things like i don't want to just be a horror guy or or a cult movie like i would like i have other things i like to talk about you know like i don't have to like sit in a corner and people love being pushed in a corner like being the horror community i'm just horror 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 i'm like but when you go to want to talk about something else and then that group's not going to want to care and people aren't going to bring you on to talk about other things. I don't know. It's just interesting to me how people want to just limit themselves to a thing. Yeah. And, um, Tribish, yeah, it's cultish. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny to me you mentioned Independence Day because this in particular I've talked about a lot. Um, Independence Day sold itself to the masses and intrigued everybody with a Super Bowl trailer that showed them blowing up the White House. Right. Now imagine trying to sell <laughs> <laughs> like you know seven years later uh, yeah oh gosh yeah that no I mean, <laughs> yep. it, it worked contextually but time. spider-man but, couldn't know. even sell what he was originally selling oh my god yeah the it i i still feel a uh weird little sting in a way when i'm watching movies that set in new york and then there's just like the random shot of the towers mm-hmm. it's you know th- there are a lot of friends transitions yeah <laughs> that have have the original yeah i was there, I, I was in new york for the first time ever the year before <laughs> so i got to see them and the next year gone like i was it was insane yeah so so i think that one of the things that tie it all back nicely is that there's there's uh, a loss of context and i think that mm-hmm. when i write a lot of the stuff that i write for the post i really it almost comically sometimes because i can see my own pattern you know i front load it with a yeah. lot of the history part of it and it's like 
this is what happened and this is what happened and this is why this is important and this is why this had never happened before and Tony Iommi got his fingertips cut off and he invented metal. You know? Right. <laughs> but it's like you got to, because yeah. I think that you have, when, when you construct the context for people, I think it, it does make it more welcoming for them in a way. And I think that maybe that comes from right. part of my education background as, as a, a teacher for a long time as well. The, the better you can set somebody up for something, the better they're going to grasp it. And I mm-hmm. think when, when you're giving somebody a totally new genre that they've got no experience with, I think I, it's kind of understandable that some people are like, Whoa, I don't get it. <laughs> but, right. But you know, you do have, you got to get them past the tweet. You got to get them past the headline. And if they read on, they'll get your context. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, there's uh, context is hard nowadays just to deliver like even so. Oh, you, you know, titling anything <laughs> is the biggest pain in the ass in the world. I Hey, coming up with titles and you know, it's, it's funny. Hawk of the Slayer is kind of a funny title in retrospect. Like Mm -hmm. what's he slay his brother. (laughs) (laughs) He's not a vampire slayer. He's, you know, he's, he slays bad guys. Yeah. Slays bad guys. What else? This is where we just talk about uh, something we else we may have taken in in the past week or so, uh, like movies, books, music, or something, or maybe something we wrote or put out in the world. So, Troy, what else? On Father's Day, we tended to do movies, and I try to get the, the boys who are now 16 and 14, you know, get some movies in front of them that they haven't seen before. Like, past highlights have included, like, Alien and Aliens, or oh, my. Um, the original introduction of uh, Empire Strikes Back to the guys um, was on a father's day. And so th- this year I decided to go a little different because we watched kind of a lot of horror movies lately. <coughs> saw spiral and quiet place two in the theater and whatnot. So I decided to go uh, So we watched the, the family watched the usual suspects, okay. major league and Silverado uh, trying to go in completely kind of different directions. And it was like crime comedy Western. Yeah necessarily do a lot of westerns although i've watched a lot of westerns in my life but silverado man that's a movie i would recommend anybody because it it is also a very well constructed movie it is very classic western Mm -hmm. type with hugely appealing cast and performances Uh, kevin klein is the standout for me he's very funny in a very dry understated way and people are used to seeing old kevin costner and yellowstone or man of steel will have their minds blown by young kevin costner right yeah yeah, he, he's he's it's like the Jim Carrey version of Kevin Costner. <laughs> Very but true. It, but yeah, uh, for for the Star Wars fans and the Raiders fans, it's written by Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the Raiders movie on behalf of Lucas. Wrote Empire, uh, worked on the new movies, etc., and uh, co-written by him and his brother. Directed by Kasdan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kasdan just a couple of years prior had directed The Big Chill, so it's got a lot of cast members in it, like Kevin Klein and again Kevin Costner played the dead guy. Jeff Goldblum's in it. Super entertaining. Contextually, um, another cool thing. You know, I'll just I'll just push the whole thing if people aren't familiar with it. Comic companies tend to repackage their stuff a lot over time, like collections and trade paperbacks and so forth. But if, if you want like big chunks of stuff at a time, Marvel's epic collections are fantastic. For a long time in the '90s and so forth, 
they did the essentials, which were like black and white, cheap collections, like big fat ones of old issues. A lot of people weren't into it because they were black and white. Epic collections are full color and like high quality paper and everything. But they collect big chunks of continuity, you know, 20 issues or so of of stuff. And, um, you know, I've recently gotten some of those and they, they put back into print for the Avengers one, the final threat, which was the original Thanos stuff from the seventies, like mm-hmm. 13 years before the infinity gauntlet, the first time that the Avengers fought Thanos yeah. and has Adam Warlock, Marvel and everything. And then also I got the, uh, under siege one from the eighties, which has Zemo prominently. It's the, where Zemo assembles a very large version of masters of evil and they, uh, attack Avengers mansion, lay siege to it. And, horribly injure a bunch of Avengers necessitating a rescue slash revenge team being assembled to (laughs) save the day. And so it's a a very cool storyline, but you know, those things are available at your local comic shop and so forth. They have them for all the titles. I've got a couple of, there's a, there's defender Spider-Man X-Men installments, just Marvel Epic collection. They have a green and black side. I would recommend those to just about anybody, frankly. My what else is comic related? I just recently took in Batman The Long Halloween Part 1 from the DC Animated Universe. Yeah. It's one of my like favorite Batman arcs. Uh, it's a lot of people's favorite Batman arcs. Yeah, it's incredible. was part of a backbone for the Christopher Nolan, David Goyer, uh, first two Dark Knight films, uh, Batman Begins Dark Knight. Uh, but this is their... They're really like, hey, we're going to do this like the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. We're doing this thing right. We're going to do two parts. And yeah, it's streamlining a little bit because you got you have to. Um, yeah. It's a different medium. It's But they really made it pretty for knowing what this ends up being. It was a pretty intriguing little mystery to follow along. They got Josh Dumel is like got some a really good take on Harry Every Dent that I don't feel like has been seen before vocally. Maybe it's just his brashier voice. Um, yeah. He's always kind of been more softer of a voice to me. Like Jensen Ackles, he's, he's fine as Batman. I mean, you can just imagine he's, yeah. he's fine, but um, freaking Jack Quaid plays the little um, Fal- uh, Falcone or whatever. Alberto Falcone. Alberto Falcone. And he's seen Steeler as, as that um, Dennis Quaid's kid. Um, yeah. The boys. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the last performance of that girl from Glee that, passed away or uh oh, yeah, Ni- Ni- yeah she's in there and uh, troy baker is like the ultimate mark hamill impersonator as joker like he's he he's got that down but it's it's pretty good i mean a lot like the, what i remember from the comic that's cut down a lot is uh, a lot less solomon grundy stuff uh um, oh, yeah narrating over um but um it's 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 there it's it's fun i've enjoyed it can't wait for part two in august i got sent a really cool care package for it which came with uh jack-o'-lantern stencils and uh calendar countdown to the second part um but i i really enjoyed part one so one one of my uh this is very random but one of my favorite things from the original long halloween Mm -hmm. is just the scene of scarecrow and mad hatter talking Uh, nonsense to each other the (laughs) (laughs) what a great thing the long halloween and um the the sequel to it dark victory are both just really great batman and they just know how to utilize those villains and weird not just i mean just to like make a community out of this world 
that doesn't like villains could be there and not be like super important to everything or you know like I just like the way they filter them through is pretty genius. Um, and Nolan and Goyer were able yeah, to do that um, with the movies as well. I don't know if you have watched the Harley Quinn animated series at oh, all, but yeah, they do a great job of the villains interacting in that too. Just oh, yeah. the, everything with Kite Man. And Kite Man. <laughs> Every, they, Ro- they Robin's hilarious job. in that. Break the plant. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh I, yeah. I do. I do love that Harley Quinn show. Um, and I just, I, I kind of like with the DC, like the, the live action movies, and especially with Batman. Like, I've kind of had this desire. Like, you're not going to be Marvel. That's fine. Just fucking do what Elseworld stuff all the time. Like, I've already gotten all the Batman movies that I have wanted in my life and then some like yeah I, I was fine with just batman batman returns and batman forever i could have been set for life but then you gave me the nolan trilogy so i'm like ooh, spoiled and i'm happy with the 60s batman and batman the animated series that's all i need ever so start fucking with it making it crazy um but they're like we're gonna make a new serious batman movie i'm like we already we have those well i'll go see it i'm i batman anything i'll do but like i don't need it I would like to see you just mess around, do like Gotham by Gaslight, what they do with the animated stuff. Like, do these weird Elseworld things. Like, we could do that. We have all these Batman movies. Yeah. You know, let the smaller characters have the serious takes and team ups and overarching stuff. Just mess around with Batman and Superman. Do it. But they won't. Because <laughs> not all fans yeah. are like me. They're all weird. <laughs> Understanding. <laughs> See, I like like, like oh, open to new ideas. I like birds of birds of prey. It was wild, crazy nuts. There's nothing else like it. There you go. Do it. Like I, I'm down with that. I'm excited for Suicide Squad because it's a James Gunn film. They're gonna let him do all that. But hey, what do I know? What do I know? <laughs> all right. Well, um, that'll do it for today, Troy. Uh, always an honor to talk shop with you and just. <laughs> praise our dark lord together off camera um, <laughs> let people know where they could uh, follow you and keep up with your work well Saturday Evening Post obviously at SaturdayEveningPost.com um, at Troy Brownfield on Twitter and if you go to Twitter or you know I don't even mind people checking me out on Facebook but um, I've been I, I didn't mention this at the top but I have a new blog sort of writing hub going at oh, Siege yeah, yeah, of yeah. Troy so check Siege of Troy out. And uh, I've been doing kind of a mix of new articles and some quote-unquote classic articles. Um, and uh, you'll appreciate this. You know, I did, I, the first uh, part of the Rock Solid column, I did the 38 special oh, kind yeah, of yeah. retrospective. Um, the second uh, Rock Solid column is what I'm working on right now. It's actually it's taken a lot more work than I anticipated, but uh, it's the, about the betrayal of Bon Jovi, how Bon Jovi uh, turned their backs on metal. And uh, <laughs> so, one year you know, guitarist of scandal, Bon Jovi is found out yeah, that's, in our that's my last in episode. There. That is or, in the piece. That's, <laughs> I, I definitely talk about that. But uh, yeah, man, it's I, I tried to get into some crazy stuff, like the fact that "You Give Love a Bad Name" was a rewritten Bonnie Tyler song. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> but yeah, just as a as a trailer for the bit, um, they were a metal band, hmm. and then they. You know, they had toured on Slippery and Wet. They toured on New Jersey. They were taking a break. Nirvana happened. 
they had a big meeting in Hawaii. <laughs> and when they reemerged, they cut their hair, they changed their clothes, they changed everything. And then they like spent the nineties as a ballad band. You know, always oh, better roses, all this stuff. They like mm-hmm. ran screaming from you know, they might have been like you had Guns N' Roses and Metallica still slugging it out there, but you know, Bon Jovi might have been able to hold it together because they were the nucleus of this Doc McGee managed right. universe that included, you know, Skid Row and Rat and Motley Crue and everything, but they didn't, they ran. <laughs> and so I, you know, I I talked about that. Like these guys were a metal band. They they were opening for Judas Priest. They're rat out on tour with they they got the hell out (laughs) so i'm talking about that that's my next big blog article all right looking forward to it uh and i'm on twitter and instagram at bread 4 kuhd we're in work at ysoblue.com there's more from the brady peter show this week but until then always remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter thank you for listening the brandon peter show is a creative zombie studios production Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Olsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. shall be wiped from the face of the land.